Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to you tonight grateful for the word that you have provided us, that we are allowed to study in freedom in this country, in which we are able to study and understand because you have set us free by your Holy Spirit from the shackles of sin and darkness and death. We thank you for new life that we enjoy in the Spirit. We thank you that you guide us in our lives. And above all tonight, we thank you that you've given our life purpose, that because of the redemption we enjoy in Jesus Christ, we can understand what creation was all about and what you intended for mankind. We thank you that we enjoy that, not only in principle in our Savior, but in increasing fact and reality as we continue to grow in Him. We do pray that you would help us to direct our lives towards him, to be oriented toward the concerns of Jesus Christ, not toward our own. So we pray in his precious name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Alright, we're going to be in Hebrews, the second chapter tonight. We began studying that a couple of weeks ago. Didn't get very far. Um, I'm beginning to bog down. I was doing so well getting through one whole chapter and two lessons, and now it looks like it's going to take three to get through this, and you can probably extrapolate from that mathematically. By the time we get to the 12th or 13th chapter, it's going to take 90 lessons. But uh, I'm not going to make it tonight. I thought I would, but there's just too much uh, very good theology, and I, uh, unless I'm told that this method of teaching is not what you want, I just think that things here you don't want to miss. It's just that important. So let's begin in Hebrews, the second chapter. For the sake of review, I'm going to read beginning at verse 1. However, our lesson tonight commences at the 6th verse, and if all goes well, I hope to get through the 10th verse in our exposition. But begin at verse 1 as we read. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that were heard, lest aptly we drift away from them. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by manifold powers, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. For not unto angels did he subject the world to come, whereof we speak. But one hath somewhere testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we see not yet all things subjected to him. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste the death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect in suffering. 
and that's far God's word. Now I have read from the American Standard Version because that's my study Bible, but at a number of places tonight I'm going to depart from that uh, for the sake of a more precise or more understandable translation. I'll just note at the beginning, even though I'm not going to expound it yet, that where this translation says he was made a little lower than the angels, I think it's almost certain that the translation should be he was made for a short while lower than the angels. And we'll see why that is. But that's the main um, translation difference that I trust you'll pay attention to. Some of your translations will probably already have it that way. Okay, beginning at Hebrews 2, verse 6. Remember that the author has just um, uh, finished an exhortation telling us that we should not drift away from the things we have learned or neglect the great salvation that has come to us, that we should um, uh, diligently attend to these things. In verse 5, he repeats the point that he's been making in the broader context that the world to come, the eschatological age, the kingdom of God, has not been made subject to angels, but to the Messiah. Unlike the Jewish sect of the Essenes, the Dead Sea community, that expected Michael the Archangel to be superior in the eschatological or final age of history, our author says, no, it's not the angels that God subjected the coming world, but rather to his Son, Jesus Christ. And now at verse 6, the author says, but one has somewhere testified. That actually is uh, putting more character to it than you find in the Greek. The Greek is very casual. It says literally, somewhere someone has said. You see, that's a rather unusual, but rather less than formal way than uh, introducing a Bible passage. You have to remember that the precise identification of sources in the Old Testament was not really crucial for this writer. Indeed, it wasn't easy. It wouldn't be uh, very uh, readily possible because they didn't have chapters and verses by which to refer to them. However, the author expects his reader to be familiar with the Old Testament. And so he can, in a kind of an offhand way, say, somewhere someone says. Okay, the saying there, of course, is God's saying. And what he's getting at is, it's in the Old Testament. And you'll know where it is. I don't have to go into this. What does that tell you about the readership? If the author treats the Old Testament in that casual way, who's he writing to? People who don't know the Old Testament, right? Wrong. It's the opposite. He must be writing to Jews, because only Jews could be expected to take that offhand illusion and do anything with it. I think we can also learn from this casual manner of introduction that the author assumes that if God is the primary, that is the writer here, assumed if God is the primary author of Scripture, it's really of little consequence to the authority of what he's going to quote to further identify the human author. It may be, it may be of interest in a way that David or Isaiah or Moses, but in terms of the authority of what's going to be quoted, it's not at all relevant. If we were to go through the rest of the epistle, you would find that the author introduces quotations from the Old Testament 
with a little more precision elsewhere. He'll say, God hath said, or the Holy Spirit testifies that, or even he refers to the Son of God speaking in the Old Testament. But in this place, he just says, somewhere someone says, and he goes on. Now, what does he quote right after this? The word saying, in your translation, you should have one, two, and a half verses of quoted material from the Old Testament. If you do not have a study Bible that sets off the quotations of the Old Testament in a separate paragraph or typeset, or at least gives an indication in the margin that it's an Old Testament quotation, I would encourage you to get one that does that. It makes a great deal of difference. And when we get to chapter 3 of Hebrews uh, and 4, it's going to be virtually impossible to follow if you can't see where he's quoting and where he's commenting on the quotation. But uh, it's just a, a very valuable thing in your study Bible to know uh, where the Old Testament is being quoted per se. Now, we have two and a half verses here that are Old Testament quotations. Although our author says, somewhere said it, someone somewhere said it, you tell me where it is. What's he quoting here? He's quoting from the Psalms, but I want more than that. This is a famous psalm, a well-known psalm. Which one? The eighth psalm, exactly. And so let's turn to the eighth psalm tonight and read it in its entirety. It's not that long. And then come back and see what our author does with it. Uh, for me, that's one of the most interesting aspects of Bible studies, to see the way the Bible works with the Bible. Now, a New Testament author takes an Old Testament text and makes application of it. Okay, Psalm 8. O Jehovah our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory upon the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou established strength, because of thine adversaries, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him but a little lower than God, and crownest him with glory and honor. Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Jehovah our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This psalm, just taken in the Old Testament setting for what we see on the surface here, is, of course, um, a hymn about creation and about man's place in the created order. The psalmist first tells us that God's name is excellent in all the earth. Well, where's God's name? The psalmist is not referring to someone writing Jehovah on a plaque and, you know, nailing that to a tree. He's not talking about a skywriter who's put God's name in the sky. But when he looks at creation, when he looks at the trees, when he looks at the sky, he says the excellence of God's name is apparent. The name of God stands for God himself, his own character. And his name is magnified, his name is made excellent, is shown to be powerful and orderly and glorious by the creation round about. But then if you look at the creation, you consider the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth, and all of a sudden man dwarfs in significance, doesn't he? 
Um, I don't know how many of you may have been up to the Palomar Observatory, but um, even apart from looking through the telescope that's there, in the, um, in the display room where they have all these wonderful pictures that they've taken of the heavens uh, through that telescope, uh, you get some idea of the incredible size of the universe. In fact, um, when I get ready to recount that, if I were to try to give you the statistics, um, I, would far, uh, I, I would fall far short of, of giving it, because no matter how many times I learn that, it just seems too big. So I end up giving things in orders of a thousand or a hundred times too small. How many galaxies are there? How many stars in each galaxy? How many miles out there? So the psalmist says, when I consider the stars, when I consider the sun and the moon, when I consider the huge size and power of this universe, what is man? And the psalmist, first of all, wonders at the fact that God should care about man. If we were to uh, judge things in terms of power and influence in the universe as a whole, Man wouldn't be a drop in the bucket. He wouldn't be worth considering. And so the psalm says, why does God even take account of us? But then of all things, having said that, he reverses the order of his thought. He's been talking about man being reduced to almost nothing. He's skewing the sight of God. But then he goes on to say, however, because he's made in the image of God, God made him to have dominion over all of creation. Man is the apex of creation. Man is of the highest order in creation. In fact, he's just a little lower than the angel himself. Man was made that close to God. Now, in your translation, I wonder how many of you have at verse 5, Thou hast made him a little lower than God. No one, by the honor, King James probably has that, the American standard. Others of you will have made him a little lower than the angel. And the reason for that is that the term Elohim is used, that's one of the names for God, and it could be translated that, I mean, just on linguistic uh, considerations. However, the term Elohim is also used in the Old Testament for those who have um, a high, dignified, or powerful position. In Psalm 82, the judges of the earth are called Elohim. And Christ will quote that in the New Testament. He says, well, since in the Psalm, uh, thou art God. And he, has, he has made God to walk on earth because they are to reflect his judgment. They have power over men. It turns out that in the Greek translation of this psalm, where we have Elohim, the Greek term for angel, is used. And the Jewish targum and commentaries upon this psalm all treat it as a reference to angelic beings rather than to the person of God himself. And there are other places in the psalms that have uh, references if you want to write them down. In Psalm 97, verse 7, and in Psalm 180, uh, excuse me, 138, verse 1, again Elohim appears and it's translated and taken as angel. So though it could be translated a little lower than God, I think the translation is preferable and historically the way it's been understood is a little lower than angel. Moreover, 
the term little lower than can be translated lower for a short time. Man was made lower for a short time. Lower than angels briefly, if you will. And that is the way the author of Hebrews is going to treat it when we turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. So, Psalm 8 is a song extolling the majesty of God and the insignificance of man. The only dignity man has, therefore, is his place in the divine calling, in God's scheme of things, because God made man to have dominion over the works of his hands. Therefore, man is important. Therefore, man is just a little lower than the angel, or man is for a short time lower than the angel. In and of himself, he's nothing. He's puny. He's dust. In God's calling, he's just below the angels. Now, this psalm does not appear to have been treated as a messianic psalm by the Jews, but the New Testament clearly treats it that way. Uh, the second verse of the psalm speaks of God ordaining strength out of the mouth of babes and sufferings. You know where that is quoted in the New Testament and how it is quoted? Does that sound familiar to you? No one? Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21, verse 16, to justify the praise of the children that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. When he is uh, criticized for receiving that, he says, haven't you read that out of the mouth of babes he is ordained strength? And so um, Jesus took the psalm as having a messianic reference. And then, the, then there is also a reference in the psalm to all things being, under, being put under the feet of man. And that is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, as well as Ephesians 1, verse 22, and in both cases applied to Jesus Christ. So the New Testament treats psalmate as having um, kind of a twofold theological importance. It is first of all important for what it teaches us about creation and man's place in creation, and it's secondly important because it teaches us about the Messiah. And we're going to bring both of these perspectives together in Hebrews chapter 2. What the author of Hebrews wants us to see in Psalm 8 is that the declaration of God putting all things under subjection of man's feet finds fulfillment not in man as man, not in man as created and then fallen from God and his purposes, but finds its fulfillment only in the perfect man, the only perfect man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Where the psalmist in the Old Testament had been referring to man, the author of Hebrews understands what was said to be achieved only by the perfect man, or the second Adam, if you will. It's not the first Adam who enjoys the privileged position that he reads, I mean, that Saul makes speaks of, but rather the second Adam, the perfect man who does so. And so if we bring these things together, the point is that it's the incarnation 
that brings God's purpose in creating man to fulfillment. What God intended to do at creation has now been restored in redemption. That the created purposes of God for man cannot be achieved apart from the redemptive order. That you must have the grace of God, we must have the incarnate Son of God do this work for us if we are going to be all that God intended us to be. No longer can we consider creation, the created order, and God's purposes for man in a vacuum, if you will, apart from the religious consideration of redemption in Jesus Christ. For it's only in Christ that what the psalmist said in Psalm 8 finds its fulfillment. What was intended for mankind is accomplished by the God-man, our Savior. He's the one who restores man to his proper place, restores man to his proper dignity in the world. Now, if I'm right in that interpretation, and I'm confident that that is what the author is getting at here, and you'll see that in what he says following the quotation, then we can draw some um, really earth-shaking consequences from that. What are we to make of the purpose of life and of man's dignity and man's toil and position in the world outside of Christ? Those who are outside of Christ cannot truly fulfill their human purpose in life. Those who are outside of Christ cannot function even to achieve the created intention man originally had. Those who are outside of Christ are not the true humanity. They are but evidences and instances of perverted humanity that is going to lose its dignity ultimately when it is judged as God. Those who are truly human, and I don't know how wide-ranging the implications of that semantic expression is those who are truly human are Christians. Those who are in Christ. Actually, what we're learning is only Christ is the true human. Only Christ fulfills the created purpose of man. And we do so to the degree that we are in Christ. We are found in Him. And so when you look around you at a lost humanity, a ruined humanity, a depraved human race, you should see not only those who are in need of salvation for the sake of their ultimate uh, soul destiny, but you should see those who don't even understand life in this world properly, who can't get along according to a man's true place in creation now. It's not just later, but it's now that they're misfit. So you see that that's why I think this is such an important passage. It tells you something about who we are, what man is, what man is meant to be, and the only way in which that true humanity can be found as it's restored in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's go through the quotation and then see how the author deals with it. He's quoting in verse 6, he reminds us how the psalmist said, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Man is so insignificant when you look at the vast universe. And so it's amazing in the first place that God cares for him. But notice how the psalmist says more. Not only does God care for man, 
he's busy man. Now you cannot expect a New Testament writer to avoid picking up on the implications of that. In the Old Testament, the idea that God visits man has a broad reference. God visits in a number of ways. He visits in judgment. He visits in blessing. He is present with his people. He guided them through uh, the wilderness to the promised land. God goes down to look at the state of man. In all these ways, the Old Testament says he visits them. But the New Testament writer undoubtedly is going to see the supreme visitation of God where? Where did God visit man above all? In the incarnation. When God came and became man, not only surveyed the human situation, not only led uh, his people uh, in a certain way here on earth, but took up residence with them, took on their own nature. So what is man? He's so insignificant in what you care for him. In fact, you visit him. Above all, the incarnation shows the importance then of human nature to God. I don't mean to be flipped at all when I say we should ponder the significance that God did not take on the form of a horse or of a star or of any other thing in the created order. When God became part of his creation, he took on human nature. That's how important human nature is. We look at it and we say, it's a bag of chemicals. Not important at all in terms of the power and, and, and size of this universe. God says, made in my image. And when God becomes uh, part of this world, and he begins incarnate, he takes on human form. Verse 7. Now the transition, I think, is being made in the author's thinking from man in general to particularly the man who is incarnate, the God-man in particular. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. I've already indicated to you that the expression is ambiguous. It could mean uh, by a small degree he was made lower than the angels. It, it could mean, and I think best translated means, for a short time lower than the angels. That seems to be what the author of Hebrews is meaning by these words and the way he applies them to Jesus Christ. He's thinking of Jesus voluntarily humiliating himself, that is, humbling himself, taking a lower position than that which he truly deserved when he did what? He took on human nature. And in taking on human nature, for a short while, he was made lower than the angels. And yet, because of his redemptive work, Christ has been exalted above all. Christ has even been exalted above the angels. In 1 Peter 3, verse 22, which I think is worth looking at again, Peter reminds us that when Jesus ascended on high, he ascended above the angels. We read, Who is on the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. When Christ descended on high and was glorified as the Redeemer, angels were put under his feet. 
angels who are made subject to him. And so the author of Hebrews, when he quotes the psalm, is thinking of Christ, the perfect man, who is made for a short time more than angels. Following that brief period of humiliation, however, the God-man was crowned with glory and honor. Are you a little nervous at this point? We haven't gotten out of the quotation. He's quoting the Old Testament. And I keep suggesting that what the author is seeing here is Christological New Testament truth. He's saying Christ took on human nature, for a short time was made lower than the angels, but now has been exalted, crowned with glory and honor. Do you have any doubt, though, that I'm right in seeing the author's intention as being this? Just go down a couple of verses here. Look at verse 9, where we read of Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. The same language. I maintain that though the psalmist might not have himself as a human being understood that, the psalmist may have been thinking, and back, not backwards, but thinking of historically, man was made to be crowned with glory and honor. The fact is the author of Hebrews sees a glorious providence in, in God's working here, that what the psalmist could truly say about created man has now become true because of the Redeemer, who himself was crowned with glory and honor, having been made for a short time lower than angels. This is, I think, one of the most fascinating instances of New Testament Christological interpretation of an Old Testament text. We sometimes have uh, Bible scholars tell us that it's illegitimate to interpret anything in the Old Testament that the Old Testament reader would not have understood. I don't buy that. Although I think that's um, something we should always take into account if our interpretation is so bizarre and so off the mark in terms of the original meaning, uh, that should bring in our speculation. But on the other hand, a true interpretation of the Old Testament may include more than, although it must start with what the original readers would have understood, could certainly include more than what they could have comprehended as being coming. And how do I know that? Well, one way I know that is, well, we have instances right here. <laughs> the author sees in what the psalmist spoke of as uh, referring to man as created, the, uh, the author of Hebrews sees that as referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work. But another passage that would support my premise that we sometimes have more in the Old Testament than the original readers would have bargained for, uh, a text that proves that I think is First Peter chapter 1. In verse 10 of that, Peter says, Concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ that is in them did point unto you, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow them, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto you did they minister these things, which now have been announced unto you through them that preach the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, 
which things angels desire to look into. You see, when someone says, you can't take that from the Old Testament, because the Old Testament reader could not have understood that at that point, we have to remember that the author of the Old Testament had it revealed to him that he was not writing these things just for his generation. He was writing these things for us to read the New Testament. And that by God's design. Alright, so I feel it's justified, and uh, the author of Hebrews is justified in looking at the 8th Psalm in the way that he does. And even though we are not out of the quotation portion, it should be obvious to us what he means by these words. He means these words to apply to the second man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Okay. Man was intended to be crowned with glory and honor, because God set him over the works of his hands and put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a reference to what we call the cultural mandate. At creation, man was made the Lord of creation. The Lord made man the Lord. What does that mean? Have you ever heard the expression vice regent, also vice gerent? Two ways of expressing it reference to a person who's a deputy, someone who is, uh, has authority but subordinate to someone else's. Man is God's deputy over creation. God made man to rule creation, but not on his own, not like a little god. God made man to rule creation under God, over the animals, but under God. He put all things in subjection under his feet. In recent years, uh, Reconstructionist writers have used the expression um, dominion to refer to this. This is the dominion mandate, that man has had dominion over all of creation. It may be that we need to stress more often than we see in Reconstructionist literature that God's intention for man to have dominion cannot be fulfilled now. That the dominion mandate has been saved by the work of but one man, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is the one under whose feet all things have been made subject. And it's only in Christ that we can regain dominion over creation. The dominion originally intended for man at creation is now achieved and only achieved in Christ. Now, there's one more amazing thing about this quotation that the author of Hebrews is not going to miss and we'll see this very explicitly in verses 9 and 10. And that's the theme of exaltation through humiliation. Psalm 8 contains two things about man. Humbling man, but exalting man. It humbles man, because what is man thou art mindful of? Look at the sun and the moon and the stars. Look at the created order. Man's nothing. Then the psalmist says, however, God has made him glorious and given him rule over all. There is humility, and in your understanding your proper humility, through that humility there is exaltation, there is glory. That is true even before man falls into sin. Now that's true even in the created order, that man finds his glory in his humility. How much more will it be, to, how much more should we expect that redemption will bring glory 
through suffering, exaltation through humility. And so it turns out that Jesus Christ comes to the position of being Lord over all by way of the cross, by way of incarnation. He is humble. The one who is equal with God the Father takes on the form of a servant, takes on human nature. He's humble. And beyond that, he's humble to the point of death. Beyond that, he dies the, the terrible death of a criminal. He's humbled, and because he is, God raises him up in glory. Because of that, God raises him in glory and seats him at his right hand to have rule over all of creation. So again, in the eighth psalm, referring to creation, we find a pattern that the author of Hebrews applies to redemption. And that is the pattern of exaltation through humiliation. That is a persistent theme in the Bible. We've done this before, and I suppose I'm not ever going to tire of doing it. Turn to Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, and see how Jesus, the inspired interpreter of Scripture, treated the Old Testament. The central theme of the Old Testament is laid out for Jesus in Luke 24, at verse 25. He said unto them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Okay, now if you had to put it in one phrase, what do you think all the prophets have spoken? How would you summarize the entire theme of the Old Testament? Jesus says, Behooved it not the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, all through the Old Testament, if you understood it, you would know that glory comes through suffering. Exaltation comes through humiliation. It behooved, it was in very strong language in the Greek, it was absolutely necessary that the Messiah enter into glory through suffering. And so Jesus summarizes the whole message of the Bible in that way, where we find humiliation and exaltation both in the created order, as Psalm 8 refers to it, the author of Hebrews sees in that a reference to the redemptive order, which we know from Jesus' own words is the message of the whole Bible. That's why I said we couldn't get very far in Hebrews 2 tonight. And this is weighty stuff. It's weighty in terms of New Testament hermeneutics, the way it treats the Old Testament. It's weighty in terms of the metaphysical question of the meaning of life and what is man. What's his purpose? Where does he fit in? You see that that is taught in the Bible and it's only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There is a new humanity that fulfills the intentions of God at the original creation. We uh, participate in that only through Christ. And we see the whole theme of Scripture found here. Exaltation through humiliation. That not only is the theme of Scripture, it's a persistent theme in the book of Hebrews. A number of... Um, Vague and incomplete references to that theme are found, but a couple, just to show you how the author keeps coming back to it, will be seen in uh, Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 13, and Hebrews 12, 2. Let me read this. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. He made a sacrifice for sin. 
here's the humiliated, suffering Savior who goes to the point of death. And yet, because he did that, he sat down on the right hand of God. He was exalted above all, and there he expects all his enemies now to be put under his feet. This is what we see back in Hebrews 2 as well. Then Hebrews 12, verse 2. <clears throat> Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Jesus. You want a model of behavior? Remember what Jesus did. He endured the cross for the joy set before him, knowing that he would sit down at the right hand of God. He would be exalted through suffering. And so it's not only the theme of Scripture, it's a very important message the author of Hebrews wants to get across here. All of that from Psalm 8. Now he begins his own commentary. Okay? After he says, Thou didst put all things in subjection under his feet, put a period there, if you don't have this in the Bible already. And the author of Hebrews now takes up uh, his commentary. Instead of inferring these things as it were between the lines, he explicitly says, For uh, in that he subjected all things unto him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Does it bother you as it does some commentators that the author belabors the obvious? He first takes this expression, he subjected all things unto him. He says, then he left nothing that is not subject to him. If everything's subject, the author says, then the other side of the coin logically is nothing that's not subject to him. The author comments on something that many of the writers uh, of commentaries have said, well, yeah, okay, that's obvious, isn't it? Well, I want to suggest to you, in the first place, it's not. I think they've missed something. A little linguistic analysis would help them. Sometimes we use an expression like all things for everything in a way that we call a generalization. We generalize things, and generalizations allow for exceptions, don't they? There's a difference between a generalized statement, a generalization, and a categorical statement. A categorical statement is meant to be taken literally as excluding all other options. I mean this categorically means no qualification, no exceptions to it. But in some cases where we might have an exception, we could still generalize and say all things. Because we take it for granted that people can write in these exceptions on their own, they'll understand that. And so we generalize. We say, well, you know, the whole human race gets that in right. Yeah, there may be some exceptions. What the author is doing, I think, is he's telling us, I'm not just generalizing, I mean this categorically. When he put everything subject to his feet, he didn't leave anything out. What do you think the author wants his readers to understand by that? What is he excluding as an exception? He says, don't draw any exceptions. Don't make an exception for... Come to help me. In context, what might his readers have made an exception for? Well, it's true, we don't see them, but there's a particular order of creation that they might have thought 
had to be the exception to this general rule. The angel. That's why the author drives it on. He says, Do you hear what I'm saying? Nothing has been left out. Not even the angels are an exception to this rule. The entire created order is now under the rule of the exalted Messiah. And then this wonderful expression, but now we see not yet all things subjected to him. I've been teaching you this good theology, but the author says, you look around you and you don't see that, do you? Am I saying this because it's God's intention to make his kingdom so visible and so clear that no one can have any doubt about this? Is that God's way? He says, no, if we look around us, we don't see everything subjected to Christ. By the way, uh, some people have wanted to say that the hymn at the end of this phrase refers to man. The idea then would be, I don't, I don't think this is right, but the suggestion is, the author is teaching us, we don't see everything subject to man yet. We see everything subject to Jesus, yes, but not to man, who hasn't taken up his rule of Jesus at this point. But to him, I think it's clearly a reference to the Messiah, the one who is the subject of this discussion. What the author says is, everything's been put under the feet of Jesus, and yet we don't yet see everything subjected to him, to Jesus. The point is that although Christ has been enthroned as the rightful Lord over all creation, enemy forces and opposition to his rule are still very evident in the world. But the point is that judgment hangs over them all. The victory has been established, but the mopping up exercises are still going on. You know, it's, uh, the analogy to World War II is heard often in New Testament interpretation at this point. When the Allies had won World War II, and the declaration of surrender had been made and so forth, there were still pockets of resistance in various places that hadn't gotten the word yet or hadn't relinquished their arms yet. And so you can have the victory in principle, but you still have mopping up exercises to take care of. And in that sense, uh, we might think about Jesus' victory. He has won the decisive battle. He is enthroned. In, uh, he is the Lord over all. Everything in principle is subject to his feet, but there are some mopping up exercises going on. We don't yet see everything subject to him, the author of Hebrews says. But everything that is left that is opposing him has judgment hanging over him. In the midst of our tribulations in this world, the author of Hebrews says that the eye of faith will see the present reign and the ultimate victory of the Messiah. And this is the point in verse 9, which is one of my favorite Bible verses. Look what he says. But we behold him who has been made a little lower, or for a short time, lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste the death for every man. The author says, But we don't yet see all things subjected to him, but we see him. But we see Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. But we see Jesus. Uh, keep saying that to yourself. Keep repeating that. As you look at a world lost in sin and bent on destruction, it seems like, 
when it seems like your evangelistic efforts are not having outward, visible success, when it seems that the powers of this world are in opposition to Christ, uh, when it seems that the law of God is being despised, when it appears to you that the kingdom of God is uh, insignificant in this world, you're saying, but we see Jesus. Wow. But we see Jesus. We don't see everything subjected to him yet, but the eye of faith sees Jesus. And it's confident. He is the king. He has been exalted. He is now putting every enemy under his feet. Despite appearances to the contrary, the believer sees Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Again, Christ is seen by the author as for a short while made lower than the angels. Now he is raised above them. As true humanity is found in Christ, and as believers are united to Christ, who became incarnate for their sakes, we too have been raised above the angels. You realize that? You occupy a position that is higher than that of the angels. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now is exalted above them. The passage implies that those who are the brothers of Jesus share in that exaltation with him. That's why Psalm 8 is legitimately quoted and fulfilled. Humanity is now above the angels in Christ. Although we do not yet see everything subject to man, we do see the dominion of Jesus. Remember, verse 14 of chapter 1, we don't minister to angels. They minister to us. That's very significant. Moreover, chapter 2, verse 5, says that the world to come doesn't belong to angels. It belongs to the Redeemer. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, Paul says, oddly, that we will judge angels. We will be above angels on the day of judgment. In Colossians 2, verses 18 and following, Paul says that angel worship is a great delusion from which we've been set free by Christ. The angels don't have any superiority to us now that we're redeemed by Jesus Christ. Moreover, because of the work of Jesus Christ, that fallen angel, Satan, is a defeated foe. In 1 Peter 5 and James 4, we read, all we need to do is resist him and he must flee. That's a great deal of power over angels, isn't it? Just resist him. He doesn't have anything over you. And in Hebrews 2 verse 16, we're going to read that salvation came not to angels, but rather to the seed of Abraham. Truly, he doesn't give help to angels, but to the seed of Abraham. And so, we need to understand not only the exaltation of the Messiah makes him now above the angels, though he for a little while in his period of humiliation was lower than them, we need to understand that we too are above the angels in Christ. In our simple human nature, especially as fallen, we are lower than angels, but in Christ we are above them. They serve us, we don't serve them. We judge them, they don't judge us. We are saved by God. They are not. Alright. In verse 9, the author tells us something 
about God's ironic way of working. And speaking of Jesus, who we behold now, who for a little while was lower than the angels, the author says, because of the suffering of death, he is crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. The mark of defeat is actually the stepping stone to victory then. He doesn't say, despite his suffering, he is crowned with glory. He says, because of his suffering, he is crowned with glory. You have a completely new outlook on theology if you catch that. A lot of people think, Jesus went through all these terrible things, but God compensated for it. Despite this, God did something better. No, the Bible says, because of the suffering, because of the humiliation, he has been exalted and given utter victory. And the author wants us to realize then that there is a redemptive reality beyond all earthly appearances. Though we don't see everything subjected to him, we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We believe that even as the death of Jesus was the stepping stone to victory, so the humiliation of God's kingdom in our day is what the stepping stone to victory. You might want to remember Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 at this point. Um, where Paul very clearly refers to the humiliation of Jesus Christ and his exaltation because of it. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yes, the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. You see that? Just because of the humiliation of Christ, he is exalted. I don't want to remind you, if you don't study the Westminster Confession of Catechism regularly, it's a good idea. There's just some tremendous theology here. What is the state of Christ's humiliation? According to the larger catechism, question 46, we read, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? The estate of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. The Confession says, Christ ministered to us as Savior in the estate of humiliation from the point of his conception to his descent into hell, to the, right before his resurrection. And then the estate of his exaltation is his resurrection, his ascension, and his heavenly session at God's right hand. And it elaborates. How did Christ humble himself in his conception and birth? Christ humbled himself in his conception and birth, and that being from all eternity the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, he was pleased in the fullness of time to become the Son of Man, made of a woman of low estate, to be born of her, with divers circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. What a nice little thing. More than ordinary abasement. And how many children do you know that are laid in a manger? 
are rejected, the mother can't even give birth to them in a, in a decent room, in an inn somewhere, so forth and so on. Well, how did Christ humble himself in his life? Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying that his low condition. How did Christ humble himself in his death? Christ humbled himself in his death in that having been betrayed by Judas, forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, he laid down his life and offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. And you think, well, that's enough, right? Wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. But the author of Hebrews says, Christ having become for a short time more than the angels, and suffering the indignity of death, is now crowned with glory and honor. And so our catechism next says, what is the estate of Christ's exaltation? The estate of Christ's exaltation comprehendeth his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. Verse 9 of Hebrews 2, We behold him who for a short time was made lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste death for every man. The motivating force of Christ's death, what is it? What is it that made Christ suffer the death of the cross? Put into this earth. We mustn't ever forget this as Christians. What sent Jesus to the cross? Sin. Sin nailed him to the cross. But what motivated him to undergo it? What does the verse say? Grace. The grace of God. By the grace of God, it says he suffered. By the grace of God, he tasted of death for every man. The initiative in redemption belongs then to God, not to us. We didn't bargain for redemption. Man didn't go to God and say, we figured out a plan. Maybe this, is, this, this will do it. Maybe this will satisfy you. Man didn't decide that he was lost and without hope and he had to throw himself on the mercy of God. No, God took the initiative. The work was undertaken when man was in no position to help himself. Just consider Romans, the fifth chapter, three of the verses there, which hopefully you'll remember for evangelistic purposes, if nothing else. Romans 5, verses 6, 8, and 10. Verses 6, 8, and 10. For while we were yet weak in due season, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. For God commends his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. In verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more than being reconciled. What's wrong with man? While he was weak, while he was a sinner, and while he was an enemy of God, Christ died. Don't you see how the grace of God sent Christ to the cross? We didn't have anything to offer. We didn't begin to love God on our own. John tells us in 1 John 4.10 that we love Him because He first loved us and set forth His Son a propitiation for sin. So the grace of God, the author of Hebrews says, is what led Jesus to taste the death. And then we have this expression that may concern you if you're a Calvinist. It says he tasted of death for every man. Does that mean he died for every single individual then that lives on the face of the earth? Well, first I need to tell you that the Greek here can be translated in the neuter rather than the masculine form. It could mean that Christ died for everything. And that would be similar to Paul's teaching in Romans 8 that says the whole creation longs for the liberation of God's children. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That he died for everything means he died for this fallen created order. Colossians 1 verse 20 says that all things have been reconciled to God by uh, the work of Jesus on the cross. However, I don't want to take the easy way out, and I honestly think in context the author doesn't mean it in the impersonal um, that he tasted of death for everything. I think it is personal. I think he means for everyone. And you're going to find that teaching in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 15, it says that Christ uh, performed this work for all. In 1 Timothy 2 6, the word all is used. And in Romans 8, verse 32, he died for us all, is an expression used. We oughtn't to be set back by that. The reason we are is because we have a very shallow, which is pretty customary in English, especially American interpretation of things, we have a very shallow understanding of categorical expressions like all. In the first place, Christ did die for all men. Not each and every one of them, but he died for Jew and Gentile alike. And that is a very important message of the New Testament. And when he laid down a propitiation, he did it not only for us, but for the whole world. John speaking here of the Jewish exclusivism that thinks God intends to save only the Jews. No, he did it for the whole world. He didn't do it for just one special selection. Not just for fat people or thin people or black people or white people or rich people or poor people or Jewish people or Gentiles. He died for all. And then also in the New Testament we find expressions, he died for us all, where the us is clearly those who are God's people. And he, died, he did die for all of God's people. The us doesn't have to include those who are enemies of God, those who will not believe in him. And so instead of taking a random expression out of context such as this and trying to decide for whom did Christ die, it's crucial that we study the entire New Testament where it more exactly tells us those for whom Christ died will never be lost. Those for whom Christ died have had a definite atonement made so that God will no longer judge them. 
the all for whom he died then must be all who are going to be saved. Because those for whom he died cannot be lost. So, let's, uh, let's let the author of Hebrews make his point here without getting fidgety about our Calvinistic distinctives. He's not contradicting our Calvinistic doctrine, but he's reminding us that Christ died for all men. Not each and every, but all men. The whole human race is encompassed in his love. And so we must have the same kind of love for them all. Well, we should begin verse 10 at this point, but um, we're out of time. And since 10, uh, verse 10 begins a new paragraph anyway, maybe it's best that I go ahead and say this for the next time. The author is going to now turn to the doctrine of the Incarnation and elaborate more fully on its purpose. And we're going to see how important it is that Jesus took on human nature and became just as we are for the sake of our salvation. Any questions? It's a marvelous passage here tonight. Yeah? yeah? I've got so many questions. I probably all just run down. But this thing about um, the angels and God, I, I, I know in here that in verse seven, uh, 8, you said, that, that where he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. That, that word Elohim is the one that's right there. Right. And in my Psalm 8 translation, it says God, capital G. In Psalm 97, it says God, little g, uh, which ties in with Mr. Thomas. But yeah. if, if he hadn't met angels when, he, when he's quoting this here, then he wouldn't have, according to your uh, interpretation, have necessarily said two things. You're going to even be over the angels. And so he said, first of all, you were lower than the angels. If Elohim is interpreted as God, then clearly he doesn't mean for a short time lower than God, implying that the time is coming when you'll be above God, right? Right. So and that again in, reinforces the importance of translating that as angels. And if if, he, if, if everything is in subjection to him, is not it a clarity thing? Not just something that's going to take a little while to accomplish? And if it is going to take a little while, when at what point is it accomplished? Because he says later on in chapter 10 that death hasn't been put under his feet yet. Yeah. Uh, we read in chapter 10 that Christ, now exalted to the right hand of God, expects all his enemies to be put under his feet. He knows that in principle the decisive victory has been granted to him. He is, by right, Lord over all. However, in actual um, living truth, the outworking of reality, uh, it is yet to be seen that every one of his enemies has been put under him. And so that is uh, to be accomplished in the future. And we cannot solve all the millennial questions at this point. I'm going to get into it in our study eventually. We can't avoid it. But um, with, just to give you an idea, in Philip Edgecombe Hughes' commentary on the book of Hebrews, which is perhaps the best in print, I think, right now, it's not... Uh, not perfect in every way, but it's about as good as you're going to find overall. But one of the defects there is that when he gets to this, he says, of course, we see Christ is the victor in principle, and then he's going to come to establish uh, for all. Uh, he's going to remove all the appearances of opposition and show the reality of his rule when he comes back. And I'm reading the commentary, and I'm just pulling my hands. And why do you say that? Where do you import the second coming? 
I get the idea here in the book of Hebrews that Christ has now established his rule and what is happening is that this is going on in history, not waiting as some parentheses to the end. And then he comes back and finally shows, yes, he is the ruler, but in fact, progressively, enemies are being put under his feet day by day, month by month, year by year. And of course, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated will be death, which will be defeated at the resurrection. So where uh, Dr. Hughes says Christ will come at the resurrection and defeat all of his enemies, Paul says, no, at the resurrection, they will have all been defeated except for death. And so uh, my answer, as you can see already, is going to be a more post-millennial rather than all-millennial answer. I think we, we're going to see this in history. God is not going to turn over the course of history to Satan. He is going to win the victory in time, in space, on earth. And not wait for the eschatological age to come in all of its glory and fulfillment. Done. Man was made for a little while lower than the angels. Yes. Well, in the first place, the fact that Christ is now higher than the angels. Well, we know that from the oh, yeah. entire teaching of chapter 1 and 2, 1 Peter 3, 22, any number of other passages tell us. Right. They minister to us, they are not offered salvation, so forth and so on. Everything indicates that they have been subordinated to the purposes of Christ and his kingdom. And since we are in Christ and part of his kingdom, they are subordinated to us. No, I think it does. First Corinthians 6 says, We will judge angels. The author of Hebrews, in verse 14 of chapter 1, says, They are sent forth to do service to those who shall inherit salvation. Angels are our servants if we are to inherit salvation. So, no, I don't think it's just an influence. I think it's definitely stated. Bible in that way doesn't deserve a hearing. 
On linguistic grounds alone, the word all could go one way or another. Contextually, both local and, and more broadly theological, contextually it can't go either way. Contextually, it must be what I've said, that Christ died in this sense of for all kinds of people, humanity as a whole, rather than a select portion of it. Well, yeah, you could say he died for all the elect here, but I think it probably means that because of the, the idea of humanity being brought in here with created man, that he died for the whole human race, not just for Jews or Gentiles or rich or poor. He died for all in that sense. But what you've said is another way of narrowing it, meaning he died for all of his people. You find that in Romans 8.32, he uh, died for us all, means he died for all who are Christians. Jim. Uh, two questions in here. Well, one is a question, one is a comment on that. In our humanistic society, we think of the whole of mankind culturally as the God, and we're not used to thinking of part of mankind as the favored one. And that's why we that we find it difficult to think of all referring to all kinds of men because in our culture we're conditioned to think that all kinds of men are equally dignified. So we don't think in terms of uh, you know, maybe only fifty years ago, you know, the Orientals were were just not really quite human and so they wouldn't be included in that. Uh, so that's one reason I think why we have a difficulty with all. We just don't seem to think in those categories of free men and physical. My question had to do with the Son of Man. Is that uh, just to mean men, or is that uh, one of the places where Christ gets his title, Son of Man, or is that just something that's shown in my Bible? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to please some people by saying this. Um, and let me give you an example of what Dr. Hughes does with that. Dr. Hughes knows very well that in the psalm, man and Son of Man are synonymous. Son of Man just means human being. A person born to the yeah, human race. And, um, but he can't help but add a footnote. He says, it is interesting though, isn't it, that that becomes a very important messianic title in the New Testament. It's not treated that way here, apparently. It just means human. But son of man, it's almost like we're beginning you know, to suggest things about Jesus from that language. But he can't do anything more than that. It's just suggested. I think, in all honesty, it just means man. This is not intended as a messianic title in this particular place, but it is, it is most, one of the most important titles elsewhere in the New Testament. What verse does that occur in? Well, that's in the quotation from Psalm 8, and it's verse 6 in the Hebrew. And the psalm says, What is man that mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? See, in those parallel poetic expressions, it just means the same thing. What is man that you take care of him? What is man? Now, for poetic um, differentiation, the son of man. But what is the human race that we visit? Judith. Well, in my condensed language, Old Testament, you know, it sometimes it says I would take it that your printers are trying to differentiate messi messianic titles from just common Hebrew parlance, yeah. Oh, is that some way that, uh, No. 
It's by interpretation. It's not the linguistics of the Hebrew that will determine that for you. Yes. supra-lapsarian versus infra-lapsarian um, question, I don't believe that either one of those are the right answer. That uh, it's a false question. It's asking a question that is based on a false assumption. That there's a, a number of different decrees and that we must then put them in some kind of temporal or logical order, whereas the Bible only speaks of one decree or purpose of God. And uh, so for that reason, we don't, we aren't forced to then put in order the decree of creation, then the fall, then redemption, or is it redemption, then creation, fall, and so forth. Well, I've kept you over time here. This is a marvelous passage. Yeah, that's right. You've kept me over time tonight. So. Just one quick, quick, quick. What's wrong? How many of you think Pat can give us just a quick? You know what you said that we can't be bound by just what the Old Testament people could understand about. Yeah. Well, did, I just wanted to say that further proof of that is the fact that the Lord Himself had to interpret Scripture. Yes, I'm Oh, uh, the people who hold the view that I criticized would tell you about that alleged proof that Jesus was only interpreting what the original reader should have understood. But because of the Pharisees and the scribes and the legalism and perversion of the Bible, they didn't see it. They, they would not be inclined to say the fact that he interpreted it for his opponents proves that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't to be understood by the original readers. And on that I might agree with him, because I think the indictment Jesus makes of him is, haven't you read? I mean, you should be able to understand from reading the Old Testament these things about me. What I'm getting at, however, is that now that Christ has done his redemptive work, we can go back in the Old Testament. In a sense, it lights up all the more. We can see things that people before Christ may not have understood. Not contrary to what they understood, but, if you will, a deeper and further elaboration and application of those things. Right? Okay, we need to close in prayer. Would you do that for us, Jim? Father in heaven, how we do thank you, Lord, for this time which we've been able to look into your word and to see Jesus and to see him and be crowned in a place of honor now and to have gone through the humility. Oh Lord, how we pray that you be help us to live and those who are not afraid to be humility for Christ because of the crown that we have taken. Amen. Amen.